Well, hey, good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? They're awake. Everybody else is like, leave me alone, Jason. <laughs> um, hey, it's so good to be back with you all. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to those who are watching online. If this is your first time with us on a Sunday, thank you so much for being here. If you're looking for a church community, a place to call home, we hope you'll consider being a part of what God is doing here um, we really believe God's doing some pretty remarkable things. Uh, I haven't been here preaching for a couple weeks. I was in Thailand uh, on a discovery trip. I've had several people ask me kind of what was happening in Thailand, and, and here's the gist of it. Um, so about a year ago, we started supporting two ministry organizations in Thailand. Uh, one is called Project Video. Project Video works with local people group throughout Thailand and other regions in Asia, uh, particularly Southern Asia. Um, to help produce gospel videos to share the message of the gospel with people. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Thailand has only 1% population of the, of the population of Thailand is considered Christian, uh, which is a pretty remarkable statistic. It's primarily a Buddhist country. And uh, when we were there, we got to be a part of a women's conference uh, with a tribe called the Aka. And the Aka were actually considered to be the lowest tribe or the lowest people group in all of Thailand. And God has sparked a revival there, and they're actually sharing the gospel with people. And it was so cool. So we're at this conference with all these Thai women, and there's these four dudes just sitting in the front row. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> and here's what had happened. Uh, one of the videos that Project Video helped produce for the Aka people, the Aka did all the, the video themselves, but Project Video supported them. It led it to four people in a Laos community or, or 30 families becoming Christian. And these four gentlemen that were there, when their families became Christian, they were kicked out of their villages and homes. And these four gentlemen were there representing the, the 30 families to collect money to help their families survive. Uh, it was pretty remarkable to be there. We also pen, uh, have partnered with a, a longtime friend of mine, Aaron and Krista Smith, um, called Venture Expeditions or Venture. And Venture started off as uh, him and his buddy Ryan Skoog, when they were in college, decided they were going to bike across the United States to raise money for things like Bloodwater International Justice Mission, which is about rescuing women and men from sex trafficking. And it launched into a full-blown ministry called Venture. And Aaron and Krista have been in Thailand now for seven, eight years and we got to go see the work that they're doing at the Myanmar border along with their partners. And I don't know if you're aware of this, and we'll be talking more about this next week, but um, Myanmar, there's a major conflict that's been going on since 1948, I believe it is, and it's primarily a civil war. And what it's done is it's displaced a lot of families, and particularly uh, young children who have lost parents or whose parents stayed on the Myanmar side, they sent them over to Thailand. So we got to see the work that was taking place there along with the other areas. They support, I think there are nine or ten different cities and countries that they're in. So it was a pretty remarkable trip. I'm looking forward to sharing more about that. But that's why we were there. We were there primarily as a discovery mission to, to, discover, to figure out, is this really what Zion is called to do? And i got to tell you, I'm super excited for what God is doing there. And I'm even more excited to share with you guys what's been happening and what some future opportunities look like. Um, before we go any further, and I, we're in this series right now called Rock of Ages, Volume 1, looking at the attributes of God. Can we pray for a moment? And I'm going to invite you, would you just stand with me? We're just going to pray. And, and if you want to, we're going to extend a hand out to the Lord, if you're, if you're comfortable with it. If you're not, don't worry about it. 
Um, but we're going to pray for this morning, but also for the people in Thailand, for the ministry in Thailand, and for local churches. Uh, Father, as we come this morning to gather in the name and the fame of Jesus, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we know that there are some people that are here this morning that have roadblocks. There are things that are getting in the way of them experiencing your grace and mercy and truth. And, and so we ask that you would bring breakthrough. The things that are getting in the way, Lord, help me get out of the way. That your word would speak, that it's your spirit, your gospel that is truth. And right now, we also pray for the Christian leaders and pastors, the missions and ministries in Thailand and throughout the world. We pray specifically for Thailand this morning that um, God is, today is Monday for them, but Lord, your spirit is moving there. Bless the work of the ministry, and God, we pray for, uh, continue to pray for all the churches throughout the world, but particularly in our area in Cerro Gordo. Thank you for the gospel being made, and we ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. We're going to stand again in a minute to read our scripture verses. I'm just, <laughs> you're like, wow, I thought that was a different church that stood up and sat down and stood up and sat. Uh, <laughs> well, hey, while I was gone, I want to thank Pastor Derek and Jennifer Colby, uh, who basically they preached in the midst of that. And before that, Megan did an amazing job. Can we just give a thank you for the word they brought? Um, this sermon series is continuing, so we're doing a whole year long focusing on the importance of belief. And the reason, again, you've heard me say it, and I'm going to continue to say it is, is that what you believe in, you become like. Whatever you believe in, you become like. And we're looking at this series on the attributes of God because here's what I think is happening. I think that a lot of us actually don't know what God is like. We can't see God we can't have a physical conversation where he's sitting in a chair and I see his face and his eyes and his smile. And, and the only way that we actually know God, that we know that we can trust what we're learning about God is from his word, which was given to us as a gift. But there are other ways in which we can experience it. But here's my point, is that if we believe in God, if we believe certain things about God, then we as Christians, if we truly believe them, we should begin to look like those things. Does that make sense? If we say that we believe God is loving, what does that mean we should be? Loving, and if we're not, it means we may not actually believe it or may not understand it yet. And so we're looking at this whole series up until Easter is really about helping us to understand what we actually believe about God. And not just intellectual knowledge. This isn't a baseball card about God. This isn't trivia about God. These are the things that God tells us about himself and that when we believe them and encounter them and experience in them, then just maybe we'll begin to look and act like the God we worship and believe in. Does that make sense? And, and here's the hard part, is because I can't see God, it means that most of my experiences with God are limited. They're limited because, you know, my wife, I can sit down with my wife and have dinner with her, and I can tell what she's feeling or get a sense of what she's feeling. I can hear her voice, but we don't always hear God. And so this series is really meant to help us begin to have eyes to see that we might get an idea of when God is revealing himself and asking that he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. So with that being said, uh, we're going to stand again. <laughs> I promise this, this is going to be the last time until the end of the message. We're going to stand again and read our text for today. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 20. All together now, you guys ready? Here we go. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You may be seated. In 2022, Gallup did a poll, one that they've done for almost a century now, about 75 years. It started in the 40s. And Gallup takes a a general poll of the United States to get a sense of where the American people are. And this question, they actually first asked this question in the 1940s, but they've continued to ask it every year. And it's a very simple and yet complex, complex question at the same time. The question is this, do you believe in God or a God? Now, let's be clear. It's not, are you a Christian? It's not, do you go to church? It's not, do you believe in the God of the Bible? It's, do you believe that there is some sort of higher power out there that is other than us that's called God? And in 19 or in, in 2022, 81% of Americans said yes. Now, that sounds like a huge number. You're like, wow, 81% of Americans think there's a God or some type of God. But I guarantee you, if you were to ask... How many of you believe that that God is Jesus? That number is going to shrink significantly, isn't it? And how about this? How many of you don't just believe in that God, but want to live like that God, live like Jesus? That number is going to consistently get smaller. And if you asked even among that, how many of you actually regularly attend church who believe that Jesus is God? That number is still going to get smaller because what we're finding is that throughout the United States, people are not just leaving church, they're leaving faith. They're walking away from it. Now, to give you perspective, ten, about 10 years earlier in 2016, they did the same poll, and 89% of Americans said they believed in God. Now, couple that back from the 1940s, in the early 1940s or late 1940s when they took the poll, it was about 96%. At the peak, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was estimated that 98% of Americans believed in God. In fact, most of them went to church. Why? How many of you are old enough to remember when churches was just something you went to? Raise your hand. Like, didn't matter if you were a Christian or not, you just went to church. Now, church is the bar. It's the football game. It's baseball. It's youth soccer. There are so many things that technically a church is just a gathering place But here's the most startling revelation, in my opinion, and I think it's important that we look at it and are honest about it. If you look at the younger generation, and by younger, see, I'm not really younger. I'm 47, going to be 48. I know for some of you, are like, ah, you're a young whippersnapper. I get that. Um, But see, there's one of them right there who's like, (laughs) thanks, Earl. Uh, uh, Here's the thing. What we're finding is... Millennials, which are those born from 1996 to 2015, are are Gen Z, and then those from 1977 to 1995, millennials and Gen Z are rapidly walking away from faith. They're becoming what's called nons, non-Christian, non-believers, non-religious. And particularly who you're seeing this impacting are the smaller churches, the bigger churches get bigger, the smaller churches get smaller until they eventually die. And, you know, I praise the Lord for what God is doing here, but I want you to hear this. We're one generation from not existing anymore as a local church. Now, here's the cool thing is that throughout the world, revival is happening. Throughout the world, if you go to the Philippines, people are coming to Christ in droves. People are getting baptized in the name of Jesus. In Thailand, people are coming to Christ. It's in America where we're losing some of that. 
And particularly who we're losing are the younger generations. And the generation A, which is those born after 2015, we don't know what's going to happen with them yet. And I'm going to say something very challenging, but I want you to hear my heart, okay? Parents, this is my challenge to you. If you don't show your children that a faith in Jesus is worth following, they won't follow. So if church, if following Jesus is a secondary thing, it's a third thing, you're actually setting the pattern. In fact, my generation was the one who first started reacting to being forced to go to church. So we're like, I'm not going to go to church. I'm a Gen Xer, ah, you know. And, and now what we did is we've modeled for each generation after and after. It's not even just about going to church. It's about being a person who loves Jesus. And this morning, what I want to talk about is what I believe is a challenge from God's Word for us as the church today, but I think it comes with a lot of hope. See, this isn't meant to be a shame conversation. It's not. In fact, I think if we listen to this well and we let God's Word speak to us, what we'll find is that a lot of the things that frustrate younger generation are probably frustrate you as well. And I believe the gospel, I believe God's Word and the character of God gives us a way to work through this so that the church becomes something that's not just an idea or something that happens, but something you get to be a part of. But more importantly, following Jesus is worth it. And, and so there's a, a guy named Kerry Newhoff. Kerry Newhoff is a culture uh, reader. He's a, a former pastor who now writes articles and talks on leadership and missiology, which is the study of culture and Christian mission. He says, here are the five primary reasons why we're seeing the younger generation walk away from church and, more importantly, walk away from faith. And I have a feeling that as I read these, some of you are going to be like, yep, I feel that way. I get frustrated. First one, the church is irrelevant. In other words, it doesn't actually speak to me. Its pastors and leaders are hypocritical and have experienced too much moral failure. Would you agree that there seems to be a crisis in Christian leadership right now? We're seeing a lot of pastors who are being called out denominations who are starting to fall because they didn't take care of actually caring about the character of the people who were leading. Second, God is missing in the church. This is interesting. They, he, he uh, uh, Carrie Newhoff polled and talked to a bunch of younger, younger people, millennials, Gen, a, uh, Gen Z, and, and what they said is they went to church and they didn't actually experience or encounter God. They just heard a lot of beliefs. And, and I think that's part of the problem that exists in church is there's actually, there's an absence of Jesus in church. We talk about him, but we talk about him as if he's a self-help guru, not a Lord and Savior who's worth following. Uh, third, legitimate doubt is prohibited. Uh, now, here's the part for me. This is part of the reason one of our values here is that doubt is okay. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt just means you're thinking. And it's okay to have questions. It's okay to doubt. Fourth, they're not actually learning about God. They're learning about the different religion. They're learning about denominations, but they're not actually learning about the God we're supposed to follow. And the fifth one, which I think is very important, is they're not finding community. They're not finding a place to connect to, and so where do they go? Everybody longs for community. Would you agree with that? We all want it. Everybody wants it. And the church used to be the place where you encountered community. Now, we come to church, we sit in our seats, and then we leave, and maybe a few people are connected, but it's now something I attend, not something I'm a part of. And for younger generations, they crave community. They want to know that they belong. Now, here's why this matters. See, when we made the decision to switch from our previous mission and values, it wasn't because it was bad, but rather it was understanding the culture around us. People don't need to know that Zion is power for the journey. Now, let me be clear. Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's Word are the power for the journey. Amen? 
But what we can be is a place where you can belong without believing. We can be a place that is unapologetically, unabashedly about Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And lastly, we are a people who want to become like Jesus. And that's why we moved to this vision and values is that we understood, we started looking at culture around us and saying, okay, it's not about the past generations. And and I want to thank those of you here. I've had conversations with some of you in this room who are like, Jason, I'll be honest. I don't really like the music style. I don't really like the lights, but I love what God is doing. And I'm not here for me. I'm here for future generations. I want to say a thank you to those of you here who have chosen to be a part of seeing a multi-generational church, even if it's not necessarily your style, because church is not about style, it's about Jesus, amen? And that's not to say that one style is better than another, but we have to be a place in which people can belong. We also have to be a place that doesn't just avoid Jesus, that has the hard conversations. I, I'm going to be frank, I was genuinely surprised at how many people told me that the Sola series that we did last one had an impact on their life. I was nervous going into that series, going, it's some church history, do people really care? And I had several conversations with people who said, Jason, I've been trying to live in my own faith, in my own grace, not realizing that all of that was a gift from God. I heard you. I heard the gospel. Thank you. We need to be a church that longs to be like Jesus, but that means we have to believe in Jesus. And not just the Jesus we think. See, here's the thing. We don't get to define Jesus. Jesus gets to define Jesus. Amen? And that's the problem is too many of us, we want to define Jesus. We want a God who looks more like us and us less like him. And so we are striving to be a church that cares about what this book, what God gave us in his word says about God, about himself, so that we can become like him. See, here's what I think is the real issue. This is why I think... Younger people are leaving the church. Why would someone in a younger generation want to believe in, put their trust in, be a part of something with the people who say they believe in Jesus but don't actually act like that Jesus? It's just not worth it for some of them. Now, I want to give a a shout out to our community. I think our our community reflects Jesus very well. Could we continue to grow in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I got to tell you, I love our community and what God is doing here. There are so many faithful men and women who are pursuing Jesus. And unfortunately, the unfair expectation is this. See, some people think that the church should be perfect. No, only Jesus is perfect. The church is incredibly flawed. Amen? And here's the beauty of that. If the church is flawed, guess who's part of the church? I am. You are. Which means we're flawed. And there's beauty in being able to acknowledge I'm not always okay. You guys can say that with me. Say, I'm not always okay. I'm not always okay. That's okay to say, isn't it? Isn't it kind of refreshing to go, my cheese is not always on the cracker, right? <laughs> there's, there's so much freedom in being able to acknowledge that we're not perfect, that we don't have to have all this stuff figured out. But what we do is we, we do want to be like Jesus. We do want to act more like Jesus, and it's a process. And the hard part is, is that The younger generation is not wrong in their observation. There's a reason why they feel that way, and and I think it's our responsibility. Now, let's be clear. We We don't bring anybody to Christ. The Holy Spirit saves people, not me, not you, not Zion. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit's job. 
Um, let's also be clear that the enemy is, is sneaky and conniving, and the, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the God of this age, which is Satan, the little g God, has blinded the eyes and the minds of the unbeliever. So I cannot take full responsibility. We cannot take full responsibility, but I think we can take responsibility for this. Do you believe that God wants to partner with his people to make the world better? Do you believe that? If so, say yes. If we believe that God wants to partner with his people to make the world better, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then that's our part. We get out of the way by trying to live in love like Jesus. Amen? And, and here's where we're going to talk about this. See, I think there's one of two problems. First is maybe, and, and I'm going to, this is, this is just true, the church has not always done a very good job of actually teaching people what to believe about God. We've gotten more concerned about teaching Lutheranism or Baptist or Pentecostal or all the different isms instead of actually first teaching people about Jesus. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I believe in Lutheran. I think God has done some remarkable things to the Lutheran movement. But is Lutheran Christian? No, it's Lutheran. Christian is Christian. Lutheran is just the flavor, if that makes sense. It points to God, but Luther never wanted a movement. Luther wanted people to follow Jesus, not Luther. The same can be true for Baptist or Pentecostal or non-denominational, Presbyterian. We can always get locked up in the wrong thing. And I think sometimes we've not always done the best job of actually teaching what the Bible, what God's Word tells us about the character of God. The second is this. Maybe we don't actually really believe what we say we do. Maybe we say God is loving, but don't think it actually applies to us. Or maybe we're the recipients of that love, but we don't need to be like Jesus. Now, I actually think it's more the first. Most Christians I know really do love Jesus and want to be like Jesus, and then what that tells me is that me as a pastor, as a leader in the church, we need to do a better job of equipping the saints to love and follow Jesus in their everyday life. The ownership is on us, not on you. Now, there is a part that you own, which is, do you want it? Do you want to follow Jesus? Now, over the last month or so, we started doing altar calls. Well, sort of altar calls. No one came to the altar. That might happen someday, though. It's going to freak some of you out. It's going to be great. <laughs> People are like, that's not Lutheran. What are you doing, right? But the reason why we're actually inviting people to stand at the end of service to surrender their life is sometimes we get so busy thinking it's a mental ascent that we forget that there's a bodily presence in salvation. That when you actually raise your hand and say, I want to follow Jesus, that's your body responding to your mind. It's not just a thought, it's an action. And so here's where we're going today. See, I believe Jesus is in the process of making us more like him for those who love him. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. God works in his people. He, he shapes us. He makes us. We're all in process. But that's only for those who are loving him and following him. God is a gentleman. He will not force you to love him. He will not force you to be like him. He'll gladly let you do you. But what he wants is for you to say, Jesus, my life is yours. All that I am belongs to you. So here's the thing. Week one, Derek talked about that God is simple yet mysteriously complex. That through Jesus, the Spirit, God's Word, and God's people, you and I can truly know and have a relationship with God. But here's what this means for us. You actually get to help other people know and have a relationship with God. If God is mysterious and yet simple, 
If you can have a relationship with him, it means that God wants to use you to show other people Jesus. You are Jesus, not in flesh, because that's a, that's a lot of weight to carry, right? Someone once said to me, Jason, you're the only Jesus some people will see. And I'm like, that's a lot of pressure, dude. <laughs> I don't want to be the only Jesus people can see. But what I can be is a man who loves Jesus imperfectly and can show people God's grace in their life. And then last week, Jennifer Colby, she talked about God is dependable, that he is consistent. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever that you can count on him. And here's what that means for you and I. See, if we believe that God is dependable and we, whatever we believe in, we become like, this means that as Christians, what should we start becoming? More dependable. It breaks God's heart when God's people don't honor their word. It breaks God's heart when people outside of the church look at the church and say, those people, they talk a big game. We should be becoming like that, not because we're perfect, but because we're striving to do it. Today, I want to share one of the qualities that has truly challenged me over the last several years, but at the same point has given me incredible hope and has actually met me in some moments of darkness. And it's this, God is creator. The Bible tells us that God created heaven and earth. All things in creation exist because of him. He is the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator. But God is more than just creator. He is the creative creator. Let me say that again. God is the creative creator. Say it with me. God is the creative creator. See, anybody can create. But are you being creative is a different question, isn't it? Like I can take a pile of mashed potatoes and whip it up and go, I created. Was it anything useful? Did it serve a purpose? Or was I just playing with my food, right? I can create, but God is not just a creator. He is a creative creator. And that's what our text in Romans 1.20 tells us, is that creation, the very world, everything in our universe that we look at, reveals, points to God's glory. And the reason why it does it so that no one is without excuse. Now, here's the problem. The Bible tells us that creation points us to God so that no, one's, no one has any excuse. But here's the thing. Then why are people denying the existence of God? If, if the Bible is true and creation points to God, why are there people who are looking and going, I still don't believe in God? And, and I think there's a couple reasons. First of all is human pride. Sometimes, how many of you have ever been confronted by your spouse and you know they're right, but you don't want to admit it? Come on, every single one of you better raise your hand right now. Y'all, my, my wife has had that moment with me. She'll say something. I'm like, no, <laughs> uh, I'm not accepting that. I know you're right, but I don't want to admit it because I've got a little pride going on. Rebellion, idolatry, spiritual blindness. See, we can't control any of those things. We can't control whether or not the eyes are open, but we can make sure that we're not getting in the way. And, and here's the coolest part. Because God wants to partner with us, what I said earlier, this means that we should not just sit on our hands. I almost said something else there. Oops. <laughs> we don't need to just sit on our hands. Uh, we actually have a job to do. We have work to do, and it's a good work, and it's a beautiful work. And it's partnering with this creative creator. And as we look at the Bible, here's what we find. So God... When the, the very first picture of the Bible, the very first sentences in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we see God who is existing before creation, and it says this, he's hovering, the Spirit is hovering over the chaotic waters of the deep. 
and that the earth is formless and void. God creates the heaven and earth, and yet there's this chaos, there's disorder, there's spiritual darkness, and this is all in the beginning. Now, here's what's important. You may not know this because our Bibles, when we read them, go ahead and leave that verse up. Whoever just had that, leave that up for a second. See, when, if you were to turn to Genesis 1, depending on what type of Bible you have, it may look more like you're reading a history book. Like you're just reading a scientific account of creation, but that's actually not what's going on. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are actually a poem. They're called Hebrew poetic narrative. It's telling a story, but it's telling a story in poetic form. And, and that doesn't mean it's not true. It means, we all know poetry, right? Poetry can have truth, but it's meant to do something more than just tell us facts, information. It's meant to evoke, for us to picture, to imagine. Art invites us to imagination. And here, this Hebrew poem begins with some very simple words. In the beginning, God created. Which means that he was not created. He always existed. In the very beginning, God existed before the beginning even happened. He's always existed. He created the heavens and the earth, the spiritual world and the physical world. He created them. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God is hovering over the water. Now, I know there's all kinds of debate and conversations and even arguments about the first chapters of Genesis. And that's not what we're gonna get into today. I'm gonna tell you that right now. I don't care if God created in six days or six billion years. I don't think that's the point of Genesis. And it's hard because when you talk with people who are scientifically minded and you're like, hey, the earth is 6,000 years old, and they look at you and you're like, yeah, I can't believe in that. You're missing the point. The point is not how God created, but that God created and why God created. This is part of the, the beauty of poetry. See, I believe, and I want, I want you to hear this, okay? If you're a literal six-day creationist, praise the Lord. That is wonderful. God very well could have created in six days. Let me ask you this question. Why did he need six? Is, was, the, was creation too big for him? I don't know. What if he, I, I can die and get before the Lord and the Lord could say, hey, Jason, the earth is 6,000 years old. And I'll be like, high five, Jesus. And I could also get up there and he could say, hey, Jason, the earth is 6 billion years old. We kind of missed the point. And I'll go, praise God, woohoo, right? Because the point of the story is that God is a creative creator and that God created everything. There is nothing in all of the universe that God, his hands were not involved in. He is the creative creator. This is when, therefore, when I read, when I read Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and you'll find that the idea of God of creator is everywhere throughout its pages. Listen to what Revelation 4.11 says. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And when Paul wrote this in Colossians, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when we turn to Genesis chapter 1 through 3 or 1 through 2, the creation story, I want you to picture Moses has just led the Israelites out of Egypt. They've just crossed the Red Sea where God has miraculously parted the waters. 
And they're going to the promised land. In fact, they're probably already at the gates of the promised land, but because of disobedience, they don't get to enter it. And pictured, God is sitting, or Moses is sitting down with the people, and they're in the midst of chaos. They've just experienced incredible chaos. They're wandering in the desert. Life is chaotic. How many of you right now, you feel like your life's a little chaotic, a little disordered? And God, through Moses, sits down and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was chaos. And there was disorder. And life wasn't happening the way everybody thought it should be. And God simply spoke into the darkness. And he said, let there be light. Now, if you're a people sitting in the desert who have just lost your home, who are wandering, trying to get to a promised land, what does this tell you about your God? God brings order out of chaos. God takes the uncreated, all the mess, and he can turn it into beauty. Some of you here today need to know that God can still create even in the midst of your mess and chaos. Even when everything seems to be falling apart, that God can speak light into the darkness. See, when Moses wrote these words, you know who he wasn't talking to? He wasn't talking to scientists or American historians. He wasn't talking to people debating Darwin or evolution. That, wasn't even, that didn't even exist. In fact, everybody believed in a God. He was trying to show them the God of Israel is different than all the other gods. The gods of Egypt, of Assyria, of Mesopotamia, of Babylon, of Persia, these gods are selfish and cruel and mean, but the God of the Bible... He doesn't bring chaos, he creates beauty. He speaks light. This is what he's trying to get to. He's, and, and this is why this matters. See, the, the Bible was not written in English, it was written in Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but not even modern Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. And it was written to a people who were going through some pretty rough stuff. So when Moses wrote these words, they had no understanding of the universe around them. In fact, one Egyptian belief system is that there's a, a giant woman who hovers over creation and the stars are planted on a belly. On another Egyptian myth, it says there's a cow. There's a giant cow floating over the earth <laughs> and there's this stuff pasted on the bottom, right? And Moses is trying to show them the nature of God, not how God created, but who God is. How this God is different. Now, let me ask you this. So whether you believe in evolution or not, I believe you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. I really do believe that. If you believe God directed, God is big and mysterious, he can do whatever he chooses to. Amen? He can choose to use things I don't understand. But let me ask you, what offers more hope in the world? The idea of a loving creator or the idea that everything just happened? If it just happened, it's not just chaos, but it's random chaos with no real point or direction. And what are most people looking for in the world? Direction. They're looking for a point. When I meet people who aren't Christian and I see some of them that, you know, nihilism basically says, hey, it's all going to blow up in the end anyway, so who cares? But that's not for, there's no hope in that. People are longing for hope. So when we read Genesis, we have to read it through a different lens. We're not trying to prove God's existence. In fact, the Israelites, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Persians, all the different ancient people, they already believed God or God's existed. Moses, Paul, Jesus 
wanted the world to know that there's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh, and that all the other stories, while they might make sense, they don't point to a loving God. So whether the earth is 6,000 years old or 6 billion years old, the point is not how God created, but why. And if we look at the why, here's where the beauty of this comes in. See, I want you to consider a few things when we think about the why. First of all, none of the authors of the Bible were trying to win a debate. (laughs) Did you know that? Not one. Not one of the authors of the Bible were sitting trying to win a debate with somebody who didn't agree with them. That's not the reason of Scripture. It wasn't written as a debate dialogue. Second, Genesis was written in Hebrew in an ancient poem. The third, and this is the part that I want to lock into and I've already said, is the fact that it's poetry I actually think matters. See, uh, some biblical scholars will say, well, no, the poetry, it's still literal because if it's not literal, then nothing else matters. But, and they'll usually say something like this. The reason why Moses chose poetry is that it's easier to remember a poem than it is a fact. We all agree with that. How many of you can still recite a song you learned in 1979? How many of you weren't around in 1979? <laughs> and and that's, that's the difference. But here's the thing is if, if poetry is really about how things help us remember, then why isn't the whole Bible just one giant poet, poem? Why the first three chapters? Why, why did God, the Holy Spirit, through Moses, chose poetry as the means to reveal the creative story of the world, of the universe? And here's what I think it is. I think poetry invites us to imagination. How many of you guys remember Dr. Seuss? Any Dr. Seuss fans out there? How about this guy? Anybody tell me what book this is? That's my daughter right there. <laughs> Shel Silverstein, I remember these poems, and there's something about my childhood in these poems that they evoked something in me. And, and I wonder if part of the reason why God chose poetry is that we're meant to read the Bible literarily, not always literally. When we understand that something is a poem, it means we read it differently. And if we understand the Genesis story, the creation story as a poem, what we find is that God is inviting us to think differently about God. Let's look at that verse again, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. The word created there in Hebrew is the word bara. Everybody say bara. Okay, now check this out. That word bara is used in multiple places in the Bible. Anytime something is formed or created, whether by man or by God, it's a bara. In the beginning, God bara the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. When I say these words formless and empty, I want you to picture something in your head. Just close your eyes for a second. Picture formless and empty. When you have a picture of it, raise your hand. When you picture what formless and empty looks like, raise your hand. And I guarantee you that if I could go around and tell everybody, everybody's picture would look differently. Why? Because that's what art does. A poem opens up for you to picture. It opens up the possibility for you. Some of you, when you think of formless and empty, maybe you're thinking about your life right now. Your life feels formless and empty. When you think of darkness, see, we don't really comprehend real darkness because most of us have some level of light in our lives, whether it be from the stars or the moon or the city. How many of you have ever been in pitch black where literally you can't see anything? That's scary. (laughs) Like, if you've ever been in a place, now imagine, it's not just dark, it's complete darkness, and there's chaos going around you. You need hope. 
And what does God do? God steps into the chaoticness, the darkness, all the messiness, and he speaks, he creates. He is the creator, but he is the creative creator. He does what no other person or God can do. He doesn't have to fight for it. He just wills it. Uh, Here's another reason why I think there's poetry. It's the difference between hearing a love song and reading a manual on the neurochemical descriptions of what causes the feeling and effect of love in a person. Which would you rather have? I think most people would rather have. Imagine like your spouse writing you a neurochemical description of the feelings they have. Most people would be like, I don't care. (laughs) But a love song... That's what poetry does. And God is inviting us. It's, it's looking at Van Gogh's Starry Night. And imagine an art student might go, well, how did he make those brush strokes? I'm going to study how he did that. And he did this and he used this color and this paint. Did Van Gogh paint this as a, a lesson in art? No, he painted it to invite you to the heart of the artist. He painted it so that you might ask questions. He painted it to evoke imagination, to explore. This is what Genesis 1 through 2 is trying to do. And in fact, I would argue this is much of what the Bible does as a whole. See, in Genesis chapter 1, he he says, God, over six days he created, but on the last day before he rested, he created humanity in his image. Male and female, he created them both. And there's something remarkable about this because to be as image bearers means, if again, if what we believe we become, it means that if we believe that God is creative, we as his people should be what? Creative. We should be the most creative people in the world. And at one point we were. At one point, the greatest music in the world came out of the church. At one point, some of the most beautiful art came out of the church. Somewhere along the way, we lost this. But it also means that humanity reflects the ultimate creativity of God, which means every man, every woman, every body type, every tribe, every nation, every color, every language, these are all a reflection of the creativity of a creator. So when you look at a person, you should see the beauty of God. When you hear a tongue you've never heard before. How many of you have ever heard Farsi? It's one of the most beautiful poetic languages. I, I knew it's, a, it's an Arabic derivative. And I had a friend who spoke it. And every time she talked, I'm like, can you just talk more? It's like listening to music. It was so beautiful. Every tribe, every tongue, all of this points to the creative nature of God. And the only way we can experience the creativity of God, God knew that we needed a way to experience it. So he gave us five senses. These senses are the way that we connect with God, sight. When you see colors, we're looking into the universe, and I want you to think about what the latest telescope is, the Weber telescope is showing us. We're seeing pictures of distant galaxies, millions of light years away, and they're vibrant colors. God created those colors so you and I could see them. How about smell and touch, taste, sound, all of these things help us encounter God. What I wanted to do this morning, and I just didn't have time, I wanted to have fresh-baked bread. How many of you guys love the smell of fresh-baked bread, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or coffee. I love the smell of coffee. The taste is disgusting. But the, the smell, it's like, oh, could I just get a caffeine high from the smell? No. And that's why I don't drink this stuff. It's disgusting. 
But the favorite part, and here's the challenge that I want to give to you and I. This, I promise I'm going to land the plane here, okay? <laughs> I'm going to invite the band back up. Here's my point. I wonder if part of the reason why we're seeing younger generations walking away from faith, why we're seeing more and more people disinterested in God, is because somewhere along the way, we stopped being creative. We stopped thinking creatively, and I don't just mean art. If you think that the only way to be creative is through art, you lack imagination. How many farmers do we have in the room? Raise your hand. Do you use creativity in your job? All the time. How about in the medicine field or mathematics? Whether you're building construction, how you love your neighbor. Creativity is not limited to art. Creativity is about bringing order out of chaos no matter how we do it. And I wonder if part of the reason why people are losing sight, losing touch with God, with the heart of God, is because somewhere along the way, the church stopped thinking creatively about how to reveal God to the world. Now here's another part in this, and this is the part that I, I hope... Maybe you'll hear this. See, we just sang the song, Waymaker, a Miracle Worker, a Promise Keeper. Some of you right now, you need God's creative answer in your life. You're going through chaotic times and you need a God to step in. Here's the problem. You usually want to define how God is creative and God's saying, you know, I have a better solution than you do. You just need to wait. Some of you are like, hey, God, I've got this problem. My marriage is falling apart. Fix it. And God's saying, hey, I don't want to fix your marriage by just doing that. Why don't you get some counseling? Why don't you start working and learning to be healthy? Or, or maybe God is like, hey, I know you have a picture of what it means for me to move, but I'm way more creative than you are. Just give me a little bit of time and wait to see what I'm going to do. See, as we look at all of this, here's the challenge. And you guys can start playing in the background. Let's, let's get the mood right. <laughs> here's the point, guys. If God is a creative creator, do you realize that some of the greatest advancements in history in the world came about by men and women who loved Jesus, who thought creatively about their environment, who wanted to bring light into darkness, who wanted to bring order out of chaos, who wanted to bring hope out of hopelessness? Francis Collins, a well-known Christian geneticist, he was the person who mapped the human genome unlocking gene editing, which brings the potential to save lives of people born with genetic disorders. Wilbur Wilberforce, in the 17 and 1800s, he became a Christian and saw the evils of slavery and realized that slavery was an abomination against God's word. And one man single-handedly led to the ab uh, abolishment of slavery in Europe. One man, because he had a creative view about humanity that all humans are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. How can we creatively love our city? How can we creatively love our neighbor? How can we bring hope and dignity to those around us? Would you stand with me? We're going to do another invitation. And here's the thing. If, and I want everybody, just do me a favor, close your eyes for a second. And if you're in a place where you feel like your, your life is in chaos or disorder and you need, you need God's creativity to step in, would you just raise your hand for a moment? If there's something going on, maybe it's health. Maybe there's something in your marriage. Just keep, keep your hand up for a second, okay? And I just, it's going to be a simple prayer, and I just want you to say this with me. Ready? Lord Jesus, be creative. Give me patience. Give me eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that how we're going to change Clear Lake, how we're going to love our city is we don't save our city. Jesus saves our city. But how we're going to bring revival is when we 
start living and creating in the image of God, that we start doing things to point people, to show people to God's love. Amen? Hey, let's come and worship the Lord in this last song, and then I'll come up in this business.